Uh, we do have a message from God's Word, and uh, I, I just trust that this will encourage your hearts uh, as we look to Acts chapter 11. Before we begin, just want to make a, a brief comment to you at home or you here. Just have small group sign-ups. Really encourage you to do that if you're interested, being involved. Just you're doing some things topically this week, I'm sure, this, this uh, fall. I'm sure all of these will be a help to you if you want to come. Um, you know, from time to time, I am uh, asked kind of a similar question from those outside the church. Um, so if I meet my friends or if I, I meet people who aren't at church or there has a, a particular neighbor who, who I, I talk with uh, as well, um, people just um, often ask me, just, how are things at church? And uh, it all depends on when you ask me. So if you ask me about a Labor Day weekend when... Um, We've got a governor mask mandate, and things are coming down, and people are whatever, maybe a little nervous or more. There, I just I say, hey, things have been difficult. Um, conflict in the church sometimes, or sometimes when when things are going bad, and right, and maybe people have left. It's just a, it's just a a, a difficult thing. But I often say, oh, we're just plugging away and seeking to trust the Lord. Um, if something's going really well. Sometimes there are seasons where there's lots more, more people coming and things are, are going well and our, our people are united and we see some new people come. We're growing in our love for God. It's, uh, it's an encouraging thing that I can, can respond to my, to my neighbors or my friends when I do that, when I answer that question. And so I try to be real truthful and, and honest about how things are going and sometimes they are going better than others. But as we look at our text this morning in the book of Acts, we're going to find a, a church this morning where things are going well. In fact, no, they're going really really well. In fact, I would say things are going great. And if a church leader, uh, the church of Antioch, would be asked, well, how are things going at, at your church in Antioch? The answer would be something like this. Well, things are really booming. I mean, people of all sorts are telling others about Jesus, and, and people are coming to faith. The church is growing, and people of all kinds are coming, like Jews are coming, and, and Gentiles are coming, and people in different backgrounds and uh, perspectives are, are coming together. We're walking together in unity. The people, though, are remaining steadfast. They're remaining faithful. And we've got some great gifted leaders and some great gifted teachers at our church. We're learning so much about the Messiah. God's gift is, God's grace is so clearly evident among us. And, and in fact, people also are being very generous. They're, they're giving of their, their finances to help those in need. And, and our church is really being a pioneer of, of missions, what we're hoping it to be, to, to send the best people out in the world to reach the world for Jesus. And a leader of this church would say, hey, the church is going great. And so my message title this morning is Antioch, a great church from Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 26. If you haven't turned there in your Bible, now would be a, a, a good time. And um, really the application of this text is this is, a, this is a church I would love Rock Valley Bible Church to be. And um, we're not like the church in any. In fact, I would say there are only a few churches in the history of the world who have had quite the impact of the church like the church at Antioch did. I mean, they were, they were a pioneering church that was just ready and poised in just a, this great metropolis to be able to, um, to go out and, and to send. And up at this point in Acts, but we haven't heard anything about Antioch. Um, we, we, don't, we don't really know because we've not heard anything about the church because the church hasn't formed yet. It, it's forming here in, in chapter 11 as people scatter from Jerusalem, bringing the gospel to them, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins, that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in His name. 
And we find this church here in Antioch becoming the central hub over the next couple chapters of the book of Acts. Not because everything's focused on Antioch, right? Not because of everything happening there, but because the church at Antioch is, is really the place from which everything goes out. In chapter 13, we're going to see the first missionary journey as the leaders in Antioch were, were praying together. God said, right, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul the work that I would have for them. And they sent them out on their missionary journey. At the end of chapter 14, they come back and they tell of all that they experienced in Pisidian Antioch. Whether that's uh, in, in Pisidia, right, with Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Derby and Iconium and all the great things the Lord did. They came back and reported that. In, in chapter 15, we, we see the... Um, representatives from this church going back to Jerusalem to correct Jerusalem on some of the errors that they were having regarding the law and circumcision. And then at the end of chapter 15, we see Antioch going out from there again, another missionary journey. And at the end of chapter 18, we see missionaries returning again, only to go out again. And so everything really, like this might be a good picture of uh, Antioch. It becomes this central hub of Christian missionary activity. We're right there in the middle would be... Um, would be Antioch, and, and everything's really going out from there, and that's really what, what helps to make Antioch great. Now, it does make sense, because Antioch was one of the three largest cities in the ancient world. little quiz time, anyone know the three largest cities in the ancient world about Bible times? One was Antioch. What are the other two? Any guesses? Not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was really impactful religiously, but it wasn't a big... I heard someone say here, Rome. Good. Okay, this is bonus points if you get the third one. What? Not Athens. It's a good guess. It starts with an A. Alexandria. Good job. Kudos to you, the teacher. That's impressive. I didn't think anyone would get that. Good job, Ryan. Rome and Alexandria and Antioch, the three biggest cities. So you think about Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, like three big cities. And this was, like from here, using all the resources they had, prime for growth, prime for ability to be able to send out people and be the church that they, they did as they corralled their resources, direct them to missionary endeavors. Well, let's read about this church, how it began and how it continued and how it uh, grew in the first year, at least, of its, its existence. And then I want you to listen just for characteristics of the church that make it great because the application for us is if this is what made Antioch great, so also what can we do to make our church great as well? Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrene, Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, I just want to see this text and just what it is that, that made this church great. Well, first of all, we see many witnesses. We, we see these many identified in verse 19 as those who are scattered 
because of the persecution of Stephen. This takes us back to Acts chapter 7. I trust you remember the story about how Stephen was being accused of speaking against the temple, that is the holy place, and the law, that is what Moses gave to us. The, the temple, as accusers said, was a place where God works His will, and the law is the way to be right with God. And Stephen stood his ground and said, well, you've got so much focus right, upon this place, but God is, has always worked in other places. Remember when Abraham was called? He was called in Mesopotamia, and he came then to the promised land. Um, you think about Joseph. Joseph was exiled into Egypt, and yet it, God was working there in Joseph's life to save a remnant. And Moses, when he was called, was called from Midian. And the Israelites were in the wilderness for many years. God was working in the lives of all these people, not just in the temple. And then he said, okay, let's talk about the law. He confronted his accusers and he said, you stiff-necked people and circumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You guys who think this law is so good, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. You who received the laws delivered by angels, you did not keep it because you killed the righteous one and, and you put him to death. And, and at that point, they, they should have seen, well, I guess this law that we lift up and exalt, that Stephen is saying, right, there's another way to be righteous through Jesus. I guess we've never kept the law in the first place. Instead, they were angry. Stephen's ears turned on him. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him to death. And on that day, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This is great persecution in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Now, what's super important here is to understand what's taking place. The church scattered because of the persecution. But who scattered? It was not the apostles. It was the people of the church that scattered, the congregation, not the leaders. The leaders stayed in Jerusalem. That means when the church spread and grew, it was not through the official leaders or the trained theologians or the pastors, but ordinary people in the congregation is whom the Lord used really then to spread the church. And so we read in verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen, you think about just normal church people scattered. They uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and speaking the word to no one except Jews, except the Jews. The ones who were speaking, listen and catch this, is not the leaders of the church. It, it was those who'd come to faith in Jerusalem. It was your, your butchers and your bakers. It was your carpenters and your cleaners, right? Your dentists and doctors, your farmers and fishermen, your tent makers and teachers. In other words, just the normal people of society, not those trained in theology, professional ministers or paid evangelists or invited speakers, everybody. Right? And this is a great illustration of, of our point in Acts, right? If we get back here, the Be My Witnesses. It, it's applicable to all of us. The book of Acts isn't, okay, pastor, you be my witness, and everyone else just kind of come and watch and listen. It, it, it's not elders, right? Be my witnesses, and everyone else just come and watch. Rather, it's everybody be my witnesses. That's what we see in the church of Antioch. We see many witnesses. Right? We, we see this also in verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Again, these are not your paid professionals. These are average people of the church. I remember a few years ago, uh, a man coming to church from the suburbs and he was, um, he was a little bit proud about this fact, about the deal that he had with his pastor back, uh, back home in the, the church that he was coming from as he came out here at Rockford. And he says, you know, 
Steve, I had this deal back, back home in this other church, is that I would invite people to church, I would bring them to church, and the pastor then would preach the gospel to them. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I, I commend the guy's fact about bringing people to the church, but that's not what we see in the book of Acts. We see normal people going out and speaking the gospel where, where they are, not necessarily bringing them into a church where a, a professional can speak to them. We see scattered people, not the apostles, speaking the word. We see the believers, not the elders, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so, church family, I just encourage you to be bold in your witness for Christ and be praying for opportunities for the gospel. Just be really, really praying. And, and you know, I, I just say, for me, that's difficult as a pastor because the number of non-believing contacts that I have are, are just not as much. I remember first becoming a pastor, really feeling that in my my heart 20 years ago, like I've just lost this big mission field where I used to work. And so I have to work on that, and that's why I play pool on Mondays nights. It's an opportunity for the gospel. And I'm always praying when I'm going to, to the pool hall, always praying just for opportunities that the Lord would give. And uh, sometimes they aren't so big, sometimes there's something. And anyway, this past Monday I played in a, a tournament, and I lost the first round uh, against this guy, but I lost in a way that different people, that other people didn't lose. Like, I didn't complain, I didn't, I didn't get mad at myself, I didn't swear, I didn't, I just kind of like, I was, I was rooting for the guy. Like, I was just very kind of, and maybe something that struck me, we, we did, it struck him, we had a conversation afterwards, talked about what, what we did for a living, and found him a pastor of church. First thing he says, he says, uh, pray for me. That's what he said. And so I, I promised that I would, and I have. I, I've, I've prayed for him every day this week, and hopefully I have a, an opportunity to speak to him like, tomorrow. Right? And, and so our conversation pursued. Right? He wasn't really interested in spiritual things. I kind of gave some opportunities for him to maybe think about that or talk about that. But I'll, I'll be praying. And if I'd have been quicker on my feet, uh, he just said, oh, pray for me. <clears throat> and I said, well, this is my question to him next time. You, you asked me, like, what, what should I, you have to pray for you. Like, what do you want me to pray for you about? Well, you know, and, and maybe praying for him because he knows he's a sinner, and then just right, right there, right? There's an opportunity. Well, that's what I do as a pastor. I tell people how sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's like my, my aim and my, my goal if I see him next week. He's, he's not been around a lot, but if he's around, that's going to be where I'm going to get. Hey, you asked me to pray for you, and um, why do you want me to pray for you? Because he feels his sin, but you can have your sin forgiven through Jesus. But that's the sort of thing that all of us really should be doing at Rock Valley Bible Church, right? To make the church great, right? Praying for opportunity to speak about spiritual things to people and, and, and longing to step into that. And you say, well, Rock Valley Bible Church, we're not so great. I'm like, yeah, well, how are you doing in witnessing? <laughs> maybe, you can, maybe you can help and be out there and be talking with people. Because you're, you're spread, right? Rock Valley Bible Church, maybe 100 people, right? Your spread is 100 times more than just mine and what I can do. And just think about that, right? You have, a, you have one contact every week, every person of the church, every week, 52 weeks a year, five, that's over 5,000 people just hearing something spiritually into their lives in the course of a year. Like, maybe the Lord would help. But here we see, right, those scattered, right, speaking the word. And we also then see, the second one, these are many witnesses. And I, I'm pulling another verse out here. I'm, I'm calling them daring witnesses in verse 20. I get this point, not because it's mentioned in the text, but because F.F. F. Bruce said this in his commentary, and that, that phrase just struck with me. He, he called these men in verse 20, daring spirits, because he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Something took a bit of boldness, right, beyond the status quo. It wasn't just the Jews. If you look, there's, there's a contrast there. Speaking the word to no one except the Jews was verse 19, 
But then we see in verse 20 that certain of these, what I'm calling daring witnesses, came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, there's some difficulty here exactly who the Hellenists are, but I think with the contrast of the Jews in verse 19 and the Hellenists in verse 20, it's probably the Greeks. So, they came up probably speaking to the Gentiles, the Hellenists, those who followed the Hellenistic culture. And this was a daring thing to do. I think F.F. Bruce describes it well. He says this, the disciples who had fled from the persecution in Jerusalem had confined their evangelists their evangelizing activity to the Jewish community of the various places to which they came. And the idea that the gospel could have any relevance for non-Jews was not one that naturally would occur to them. But in Antioch, some daring spirits among them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, took a momentous step forward. If the gospel is so good for the Jews, might it not be good for Gentiles also? So they began to make known to the Greek population of Antioch the claims of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then he said this enterprise met with instant success. Now, it may be obvious to us, well, of course Gentiles receive the gospel. Of course it's good for them. We're, we're Gentiles, right? The vast majority of us all, right? We're, we're Gentiles. Of course the gospel. But for them, it was, it was different. Like, like they, they think about the, the Jews receive it, but now the Gentiles. What, what about these people? And they had you know, probably heard, perhaps, about the story of Peter going to Caesarea. They, they heard about this, and then they, they went ahead and went to the Gentiles. And, and I'll just say, right, those people who are, who are outside of, uh, of maybe what, what you think, like, well, they're not church people, but maybe they'll receive the gospel even better. I've been working to memorize the, um, the evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 13 when Paul is speaking to Pisidian Antioch. And uh, uh, there's a point uh, right there when he finishes, the, 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 gen, the Jews reject it. And so Paul says, um, we're turning to the Gentiles. Since you uh, cast away the word of God, you, you show yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. You may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard it, Acts 13, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord in a way the Jews didn't. You remember Jesus, right, when he um, uh, met the woman and she was sinful and she was crying at his feet and wiping her, her tears off his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees were like, oh, if, if, if Jesus really knew who he was, right, he's a grumbling, they're grumbling against him because here was this woman of the city touching him. And, and Jesus said, listen, but she loves me. I came into your home and you didn't, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't help me. But she, from the time she's kissing my feet, she's, she's wiping her tears off my feet with her hair. Like that's the response of people who maybe aren't in our circles. Maybe they're not church people. Just give you a perspective that maybe these people will embrace the gospel even in a greater way than, uh, than normal church people, which perhaps, which is why I go to the pool hall. It's always interesting here, though, that, that, that people, churches say, yeah, yeah, we want that, right? We want to reach out to the undesirable people. What happens when the undesirable people come to church? Oh, we don't want that. Right? We want church to be the safe haven for us, right? Like, they, they were reaching out to these people who were different. The Hellenists, I mean, they had issues with different cultures, different eating, different habits, and mixing with the Jews would have been a difficult thing. They brought trouble into the church because the church was no longer homogeneous, and, and they may have faced some... Uh, some ridicule as, as a result of it. But I just encourage you to think about being a, a daring witness. 
And if you think about, well, were they really daring? Think about what it took when Peter crossed the line from the Jews to the Gentiles. It took an act of God for him to do that. He received this vision of the sheet coming down, says three times, like, no way, I'm not going to, no way, no way. He resisted over and over again. And it took an act of God by a vision of Cornelius and these men showing up and synchronizing these two visions together. And then it took the Spirit telling him, go with these men and make no distinction. Peter had to be a daring spirit to be so bold to go to a house of a Gentile. And who knows, right? As they reach this success here, maybe the Lord would grant us success. Maybe grant you a measure of success to be a daring witness to cross cultural lines with the gospel of Jesus, with people who, who aren't maybe like you, but who are different. Be a daring witness. Even seek to reach out to them. And whatever's going to happen, right, it's only going to happen under the sovereign hand of God. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is my third point here this morning. We see God's hand. What makes a great church? Well, many witnesses and even some daring witnesses to go out to the, to the cross-cultural lines, but also God's hand. That is, the hand of the Lord, it says, was with those who witnessed. And, and the truth be told, this is really a secret sauce behind every great church, is the hand of the Lord. Because... The hand of the Lord, he's, he's the only one who blesses our work. I think in a church, you can build a church with extremely dedicated people, with immensely righteous people, incredibly smart people, exceedingly gifted people, but apart from the hand of the Lord, such people gathered will not make a great church. Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the church, we labor in vain who build it. It's the hand of the Lord that makes a great church. I love what Paul said when talking about the church at Corinth. When we get to Acts 18, we'll see the birth of the church at Corinth. I'm looking forward to that because there's so much data then also in First and Second Corinthians written to this church. But um, this church was boasting of its great leaders, and they had great leaders. They had Apollos, who was, who was uh, golden-tongued. I mean, he, he was amazing. He was mighty in the Scriptures, a great, eloquent preacher. And they had Paul, this, this mighty theologian, right? But when Paul described the church at Corinth, though he had Apollos, this great preacher, and though they had Paul, this great theologian, established his church, and people said, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 7, for one says, I, when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely, being merely human? He's saying, Let's, it's just not about these people. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. There you see the sovereignty of God, that we are servants through whom people will believe as God has assigned to each, as God works with His sovereign hand. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You might say, okay, well, that, that's good. Okay, so Paul has his part, and Apollos has his part, and God has his part, right? Paul planted, right? That's including just kind of gathering a church and beginning people from scratch. And, and Apollos watered, that was, he was a, a preacher really seeking to build it up, and, and, and they did that, and God was just giving more and more people to that. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says that's not the way to think about it. The way not to think about it is, is, okay, we're doing our part, God's doing His part. Rather, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, so neither he who plants, that's me, Paul, nor he who waters, that's Apollos, is anything 
But only God who gives the growth. Only God is anything. You need the Lord's hand to, to see a church being built and thrive to be a great church. And when describing those who are instrumental in seeing a church grow and flourish, right? We're just servants through whom God believe, who through whom people believe. But God is the one who signs the fruit. Yes, Paul started the church. Yes, Apollos taught the church. But like any farmer knows, Paul and Barnabas were, were merely servants of the land to put the seed in the soil. But God is the one who causes the growth of the seed. Only God is able to do anything when it comes to the growth of the church. And that's what we see in the church at Antioch in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What does turn mean? Turn, turn means that you're, you're going one way and you, you believe and then you turn the other way. That's a lot like another word, right? What, what word is that theological word? Sounds like repentance, right? They turned to the Lord. Remember how our, our text ended last week, verse 18? After Peter explained everything that happened and the Holy Spirit coming down upon the, the people in Cornelius' household, he said, I can't stand in my way. I, how can I stand in God's way? Then he says in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, sort of like in awe, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I just made the point, God grants repentance. What happened in the home of Cornelius in Caesarea also took, the place, took place in Antioch as God was granting repentance as these people were turning to the Lord. And for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, it's the same, right? We need the Lord to grant repentance to unbelievers in our lives. And how is God going to grant repentance? Through us praying and pleading that God would grant repentance. And maybe we don't have because we don't ask. Are you pleading that God would grant repentance to the unsaved people in your life? It's the key. What makes a great church is God's hand. Fourthly, we, right, we see outside support. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Here we see the church in Jerusalem hearing what's going on at Antioch and, and sending one of their best to help the church in Antioch. Now, in, in some measures, the church developed historically. There was an opportunity for the, for the mother church in Jerusalem to give its sanction and approval upon churches that, that sprouted up. We saw that in Acts chapter 8 when the church initially came into Samaria. The, the people in Jerusalem heard that Philip's evangelistic opportunities up, up north there in Samaria, and they sent representatives, apostles, just to see what was going on. And then they prayed for them. They prayed they would receive the Holy Spirit, sort of like the Spirit that they received in Jerusalem would be received there as well. And the Spirit was received there in Acts chapter 8 as Peter and John went out, and, and God was blessing that church. And, and so likewise here we see here with Barnabas, right? The church in Jerusalem heard about it. They said, well, why don't you go check it out? Go to Jerusalem and check it out, Barnabas. And so he went to Antioch to seek God's blessing upon that work, to, to seek to affirm it, to seek to help it. And that's the outside help and support that this church in Antioch needed actually to be made great, to put them on a, a right track, on a straight track, to be, to be helped by a stronger church back in Jerusalem. Because we're going to see here in a little bit that Barnabas is a huge blessing to the church. Not only did he encourage them, son of encouragement is what Barnabas is, but also he discerned what they needed, and they needed the apostle Paul. And so he sought out Paul, and he brought him to, 
to Antioch as well, and its outside support can really help help a church, particularly in the early days, and, and particularly extremely helpful when starting a church. I remember starting Rock Valley Bible Church. We could not start have started Rock Valley Bible Church apart from the support that we received from Kishwaukee Bible Church in DeKalb. They supported us with the oversight and direction in the early, early years of our church. They supported us with time. They, they sent people up here to help. They, they, sent a, they support us financially. And, and apart from their support, we would never have existed as a church. And here is Antioch. Antioch maybe would never have been great apart from that outside support, helping at the foundation to be what it was, to be able to have such a missionary impact upon the world. And I say particularly, right, planting churches is hard, and we need to help and support those planting churches in whatever way we can to help them become great churches. And that's what we see in the church in Antioch. They, they had the support in the church at Jerusalem, particularly just in a single man who came, Barnabas, and his role is described then in verse 23 and 24. We read this, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now I'm calling Barnabas here a, a humble builder. That's another thing that makes churches great, is humble builders. Barnabas is no stranger to us. We, we us who've been working our way through the book of Acts. He first comes on the scene in, in chapter 4. His real name was Joseph. He's called Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And, and, and he got the name because he was an encourager. I mean, he was a man who looked upon the good things and affirmed them and built them up rather than seeing the bad things and criticizing them. I just say nothing hurts a church more than chronic complainers who see the bad, point out the bad, talk about the bad. And pastors and leaders of church, we know what's bad. <laughs> yeah, I know it's bad. But what really hurts is chronic complainers are unwilling to lift a finger to change it. And I've seen it in my years of, of pastoring, right? Chronic complainers will identify correctly a problem, but then when asked to maybe help that problem, not my problem, not my problem. That's your problem. Your leaders, you guys need to do that. Like, we need help. Like, where are people being saved at Rock Valley Bible Church? Where are the unbelievers coming in? Well, are you inviting? No, that's not my job. That's your job. <laughs> well, what about this? There's a mess over there. Well, well, can you help clean it? No, no, I don't have time. <laughs> Just on and on, on and on. That was not so the Barnabas. He was a committed follower of Christ, worked hard to build the church, and when he saw a problem, he stepped up. In Acts chapter 4, you remember when he, when he came, the, the issue was that there were some poor people who'd come to faith in Jesus in Jerusalem, and they needed help financially. And so he sold a piece of property, took the money, laid it at the apostles' feet, and said, here, you all use this to help discern how it is you can help the poor people. And he just gave himself. That's what he did. He said, there's a problem. I want to encourage these people. And here, let's give them a big, big chunk of money to help that. And, and, and he didn't come with criticism, pointing out everything needed to be changed. He came with joy. I mean, look at verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God... He was glad. I mean, the grace of God was evident in the church in Antioch and that thrilled the heart of Barnabas. And he responded by just encouraging the people. Verse 23, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, right, what you're doing, church in Antioch, keep going. Press on. Keep it up. Notice here also, I think there's a, a humble builder here as well, is he didn't come with his agenda. 
He didn't come saying, uh, I, I think you ought to tweak this, or I think you ought to be doing this. Or, he didn't change their agenda at all. He just he didn't tell those in Antioch where they got it wrong or what they needed to do better. He simply encouraged them, just press on, keep going, humbly building, like humbly encouraging and lift them up. In that way, it's, in many ways, he's like a cheerleader. In fact, this word uh, translated here in verse 23, exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. Um, this is parakaleo, it's the same word, it's just different context it, that can be translated encouragement. In fact, when it says son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4, it's the same word, son of parakaleo. And here he parakaleoed them. He, he encouraged them, maybe exhort them, but I think it's better here he encouraged them. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord. That was the character of Barnabas. He was an encourager. He was a helper. In fact, his character is described in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is what makes a good builder of churches, good, honest men who walk with integrity, spirit-filled. That is, they're filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're, they're filled with faith, believing that the Lord will accomplish all that He has promised, that He is near to those who call upon Him, humbly seeking the Lord, directing people to the Lord and not to themselves. In fact, that's even going to come out with uh, clarity in my next point, how Barnabas wasn't about himself. He was a, a humble builder. He was about lifting up other people. There are great churches of many witnesses, daring witnesses even. Great churches have God's hand moving among them. They have outside support of people helping them. They're filled of humble encouragers, and they're filled also with gifted teachers. We see this in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. But when he found, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. After being in Antioch for some time, he did recognize a need. He recognized a need for a good teacher. And he sought out Saul, who's called Paul. You remember his story was introduced in Acts chapter 9. If you remember, he's a zealous Pharisee on the way to Damascus to, to go door to door to imprison Christians, right? binding them up so they'd be brought back to Jerusalem and put on trial as heretics perhaps put to death like Stephen, or perhaps flogged like the apostles were. And along the road up to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Struck him blind and sent him into Damascus where he spent several days praying and fasting. And God wonderfully changed him. For the, the, the church's greatest enemy becomes the church's greatest leader. Now, if you remember when Paul was in Damascus, right, he began preaching Jesus right away in the synagogues, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Like proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the one upon whom we need to hope. He's the one who will deliver us from our sins. We just simply need to believe in Him and trust in Him. And through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And there's salvation in no one else other than the name of Jesus. And He's proclaiming these things. Yet the believers in Damascus were fearful associating with Him because He knew He was a persecutor of the church. But eventually proving this, eventually they, they gave in and they accepted that and, and they embraced Him. But when Paul returned to Jerusalem... The believers there were fearful of him as well. They did not believe that he was a disciple of Jesus. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, believed in him and put his own life on the line. And he stood up for the apostle Paul. And, and he told the apostles what happened on the road and how, how Paul preached in the synagogues of Damascus and how Paul was to be trusted. There's Barnabas, the, the humble encourager, like 
Paul is the one. Believe in Paul. Barnabas believed in other people, and he believed in Paul. But I think there's also an issue here of humility with Barnabas. I mean, he saw how things were going well at, our, at Antioch, and he certainly was equipped. He could have served the role as being a lead teacher of the church, having been sanctioned from Jerusalem. He could have done that, but he knew there was someone better. Saul of Tarsus. He went off to search for him in, in Tarsus, in his hometown. He found him and told him about Antioch, and then they, they came back together in Antioch. It was a huge act of humility. A few pastors, I think, would ever do this, to pass up an opportunity to be a, a main teacher to a growing, thriving church in favor of someone else. In fact, sadly, when in California, we just heard the story of a, of a I, I would even call it a faithful pastor who was pastored for years, probably 40, 50 years. And uh, as we went out, go out to California, there's this, this network of churches, which are wonderful out there. And uh, there's this man, and, and, and we know the youth pastor at the church, who was a worship pastor, whatever. And the plan was, we heard this plan like 15 years ago, is that, is that eventually like he would go away and the other one would come up. And um, sadly, that's just not the case. And, and, and this man even got his Ph.D., and just was equipped and trained, and that's not the case. And he just is he's getting dementia now, the pastor is, and uh, he's just kind of holding on to his pulpit rather than realizing, no, there's someone else better, and I should step down. It just takes a great act of humility, what Barnabas did here, the humble builder who recruited a, a gifted teacher. And we see Paul in, in Acts 9's story resumed here in Acts chapter 11, and basically starting in chapter 13 and following, half of the book of Acts is all about following the Apostle Paul. We're just going to put our, our blinders on. We're going to say, okay, where's Paul going? And we're just going to look wherever Paul is. That's where the book of Acts goes. It doesn't take its focus off of Paul. It's how great a man he was. It's going to follow him through his missionary journeys, planning and strengthening churches, his arrest in the temple in Jerusalem, his years of imprisonment in Caesarea, and then his travels to Rome and standing trial in Rome. Paul's a gifted teacher. He, he wrote much of the New Testament and according to verse 26 here, we see that he, he met with a church and he taught a great many people. Well, you might want to say, what did he teach them? What was Paul going to teach these people in Antioch? Well, we can guess by what he taught the church in Corinth. Just a couple verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul said this to the church at Corinth, probably true of the church in Antioch. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, you scrape it all down, right? Everything I taught to you was about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything flowed from there, right? It's Christ Jesus on the cross for our sins, and we believe in Him, trust in Him, right? That's how we're made righteous. So any practical application all comes from the cross. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following, Paul writes to those at Corinth, and he says, I delivered to you... That's of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and He speaks about how He appeared. This resurrected Jesus appeared to so many people. And, and Paul said this was the first importance of what He taught to those in Corinth. And this is the only thing that He focused on. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I think His focus in Corinth was the same as His focus in Antioch, who taught the gospel to those in Antioch, how we can experience forgiveness of sins through the name of Jesus. 
and he would have taught them what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus and what it meant to be a quote-unquote Christian. In fact, it's really interesting how this text ends here. It says, in Antioch, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christian would be like a, a follower of, of, of Christ, a Christian, one who followed Jesus. It's interesting here that the disciples is really the proper name for the believers. In fact, if you, you look through Acts, you just find that. The disciples, the disciples, the disciples. In fact, when, when, when uh, Paul was preaching in, in Damascus, they, they weren't sure, they didn't believe that he was a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Christ. Used vastly more than this word Christian. Used even more than believers. A disciple. A disciple is a learner, a follower, one who faithfully follows after the Lord. That's what it means to believe, to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And sadly, there are people today who say, well, you can just believe, but you don't need to be a disciple. Disciple something extra. I'm like, no, you read the book of Acts, disciple is the thing. But they were called Christians here. Were is in the passive voice. That means the disciples didn't call themselves Christians. They would have preferred the word disciple. I'm a disciple of Jesus. But they were called Christians probably from outsiders. And um, probably not such a, such a good name, actually. Like if they were uh, a football team, they'd probably stand up and protest, oh, I don't like that name Christian, it's derogatory towards me, and then they change their name to something else, right? That's the, the tenor of the day. But they were, they were called Christians by other people, the, the ones who follow Christ. You know, this word Christian is only used two other times in the whole New Testament. Uh, one is in 1 Peter. We're talking about the, the context of suffering. If any of you suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, right, you Christian, you follower of Christ, and then the persecution came. So it's a, a derogatory sort of term. Acts 26, verse 28 is the only other time Christian is used. And King Agrippa, Paul says, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets. I know you believe. And then Agrippa, when Paul was speaking to him, said, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? Like one of those despised people? One of those people following this Christ, I wouldn't do that. So, Christian that, that we use, and, a, and we don't read anything that they rejected the term, but it wasn't such a, a wonderful term. Disciples is the term that they would call themselves, but other people called them Christians, and now people who believe in Christ today are called Christians, which are, are just fine. But here's what's, what's so interesting. The church in Antioch was great because of the label that other people placed upon them. They called them Christ followers, Christ people, or people following this Messiah. Uh, could that be said of you? So they look at you so much, and they say, oh, you're this Christian. Maybe a, 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 current, um, a current parallel to that might be called a Jesus freak. Oh, those Jesus freaks. Oh, that Christian. Is that true of you? When people look at you, do they call you a Jesus freak? Do they call you a Christian, one who's following after Christ? That, that's the makeup of, of a church, is those who are Christians, those who are so identified with following Jesus that that's how they're identified. Well, next week, we're going to look at uh, verses 27 and through 30, and there's, they were generous, right? There's really a, another great aspect of, of the church, but I, this is such a rich passage, I didn't want to just 
um, tag on 27 and following, but they were, they were generous and they gave, and they gave to helping other people. Yet another characteristic of a great church. And I, I'm just going to pray right now just that, that these things would be true of us and just challenge you that to the extent that you could change some of these things in your own life to help make us a great church, that'd be great. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church in Antioch, which is such a model to us and such a model beyond grasp in many ways, just a unique church at a unique time in a unique place that trained up and equipped and sent out and supported. And, and yet today, the, the city of Antioch has a mere 40,000 people in it, not very big. And yet back then, this was, this was the, the, the city for your time, God, that you used in a great way. And uh, Father, just even preaching this message, we, we are thankful for that. I, I see very clearly how we as a church at Rock Valley Bible Church are not that. Um, God, I pray you'd help us to, to read Acts not in discouragement, but in thankfulness and worship to you for what, what you've done, and in longing, oh God, that you would so work in us that we could be a in some regards, a fraction of what this church was. And so I pray for us along these lines that you would give us boldness to speak with others. You would give us a, a trust in you to build. God, that we would, we would see just through networks of churches and pastors and people that we would see and gladly receive support from others and help and encouragement. God, that you would give us humble builders and gifted teachers. I, I pray for myself, that I would understand the time when I would step down, God, to, to have other gifted teachers come in my way, God, to see Rock Valley Bible Church be a, be a great church, God, for your glory. I just thank you for what you've done and pray you'd instill some of these principles in us that we would long to pursue and follow hard after you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.